This morning we're going to begin a study that I'm very excited about. So any time that I will be preaching over the next couple of months, I will be going to the same book, and it's going to be the book of Luke. So I hope you go to the same book too every time I'm preaching. Gospel of Luke chapter 1. The Gospel of Luke chapter 1. We're going to read the first four verses, and then we will pray and dive in. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The doctor records these words. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, once more we come together on this, your Lord's Day, and we worship you, we exalt your name, and we are thankful for the gospel. And we thank you that you, through your Holy Spirit, moved men to pen words such as the ones we've read even just this moment. And we praise you that you have given to us this divine revelation that not only reveals to us the content of our faith that we believe and embrace, but as well feeds our souls so that as we go into this week to once more live the Christian life in a world that is hostile to it, that you would sustain us and strengthen us and provide for us a means of endurance so that we might run our race faithfully and to the praise of your glory. So I pray even now as we look at the beginning of this wonderful gospel that your name would be exalted, that we would see Christ and that, most importantly, you would be glorified in everything that we say and do. For we ask it in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Have any of you, and probably the teenagers are just going to laugh at me for this, and I don't care, that's fine. Have any of you listened to, on a regular basis, or at any point, any of like old-time radio shows? Does anybody do that? Okay, some people do. Thank you. So some of the ones that I enjoyed listening to as a kid, because my parents would get these CDs, actually it started out with cassette tapes, and then it was CDs, and then as I got to my high school years, I finally got one of those uh, iPod Nanos, so it had the like, little circle thing, and I was able to download my own MP3s of old-time radio shows. But some of the ones that my parents would get and that we would listen to were a lot of the um, Western shows, so there was, uh, there was I think... Not Gunsmoke, but there was another one. I'm totally blanking on it right now. Um, anyways, there, was, there were Western ones that we would listen to. But then the ones I really enjoyed were the mystery ones. So if you've ever watched any of the old Sherlock Holmes movies with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, those are the ones that they also would have on radio for the Sherlock Holmes series, and I love listening to those. One Western, though, that I did like to listen to as a kid, and I actually enjoyed watching as well, was... The Lone Ranger. I'm talking about the old black and white ones. And uh, at times, there were quotes in the movies that just kind of became iconic. 
And sometimes I, I, sometimes I think we get mixed up on which was which, if it was like Zorro or if it was the Lone Ranger. But at least for the Lone Rangers I listened to, sometimes somebody would be in trouble. There'd be all these bad guy cowboys. They're all dressed in black, of course. And the, the Lone Ranger comes waltzing in to rescue the people. You know, he's got his silver bullet and... And he's got his, his valiant steed he's riding in, and he's got his mask on, and he comes in, and he rescues everybody, and then he leaves. And the rest of them are like, where did he go? And the quote that always comes to my mind, maybe yours, is, who was that masked man? Who was that guy? They wanted to know the identity of their hero. In some ways, that's what the Gospel of Luke serves as. Now, Jesus did not wear a mask, and Jesus most certainly in his life did not mask who he was. In fact, everything he did was intended to reveal exactly who he was. But just because he revealed that, just because he identified himself clearly for who he was, doesn't mean that everybody who saw him or heard the stories of what he had done all knew instantly his identity. And there were people, as the the years following Christ's ascension uh, passed on, there were people who were hearing these stories about Jesus and were wondering, okay, is this like, is this folklore? Is this guy who did some semi-interesting things, but now his followers and fanatics are kind of making it bigger than it actually was? You know, it's it's like a, a gigantic game of telephone. There are people who were there, they saw what happened, and then they pass along what they perceived to have happened to somebody else, and that person hears one thing and tries to pass it along to somebody else, and over the course of time, the story kind of slightly changes, whether details are forgotten, or details are added, or details are exaggerated. And so there were people who were confused about who Jesus was. Who was that masked man? Why do his followers seem to be really crazy? But then there were others who weren't just skeptics. They were actually believers. They were Christians who had believed the gospel message as proclaimed by the apostles, such as the apostle Peter or the apostle Paul. But they still had questions in their mind. And like anybody who is questioning the faith or questioning the details or the, of the content of faith, they, went, they wanted answers, and so they went to the people who they thought had the answers. Well, thankfully, in the course of human history, God has given to us people who are skilled in different ways. And we, we see some of this. Some of you in this room are very gifted when it comes to mechanical things. Some of you would describe yourself more like a handyman. Some of you are very gifted as cooks, or, or, and I, I am not a cook whatsoever. Some of you are gifted as cooks. Some of you are the grill master. Some of you may be really interested in history, and you like to know the facts. And so, as a historian, you want to gather the details and gather the resources to come together so you can find an accurate picture of what actually happened. What we have before us in the Gospel of Luke is a history. It's a history. In fact, much of Scripture itself, Old Testament and New Testament, is recorded history. It's not just propositional things. Like we think of Paul's epistles, and a lot of times it's deep theology. He's not necessarily recording something specifically about a historical event other than maybe the, the death and resurrection of Christ. 
But some things, like Gospels according to Luke and Matthew and Mark and John and some of the historical records in the Old Testament, like the Chronicles and the Kings and 1st, 2nd Samuel, they record historical events. Luke is an excellent historian. Whoever wrote Luke, which obviously we believe it was Luke, and I'll get to that in a second, whoever wrote Luke, whoever he was, was an excellent historian. And he knew that there were people in the, the Christian faith who had questions. And he wanted to give the answers to them. And frankly, if you want to think about it in this sense, the gospel according to Luke is really kind of an apologetic. Now, that's not to say he's saying, I'm sorry that we believe Jesus. That's not what he means by apologetic. It's, it's a defense. He's defending not only who Jesus was and what he taught and what he did, but he's also defending the reality of who Jesus is against the critics who are trying to denounce the reality of what Christ did and taught and who he was. So we get to this gospel, and frankly, today is really kind of more informational, if you will, because that's what Luke is doing in his introduction, is he's providing for us information, albeit not much, but some information for us. And so this morning, I'd like to just share with you the reason why the Gospel of Luke was written and why that's important for us. So if you want to know what the main point is, here it is. The Gospel of Luke was written so that we might know for certain the importance and significance of what God has done in Christ for all nations. That's a very wordy sentence, but I think it encapsulates exactly what Luke is trying to do. He wrote it so that we as Christians might know for certain the importance and the significance of what God has done in Christ for all the nations. And he does so um, very accurately and historically. So there are four things today, four headings, if you will, at the beginning of this that we need to answer before we dive into the gospel according to Luke. And that is we need to figure out who wrote this. We need to find out when he wrote it, because that, believe it or not, that's actually important to the story, who he's writing it to, and why he wrote it. These are the four important questions we have to ask. Frankly, they're the questions we ask whenever we open our Bibles, hopefully, is who wrote this? When did he write it? Who is he writing it to? And why is he writing it? These are questions we have to answer when we, whenever we open the text of Scripture, and that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. So let's begin by asking the obvious question, who wrote this book? All of you in your minds are thinking, well, that's obvious. It was Luke. But in those first four verses, there's no name mentioned besides one, Theophilus. There's no mention of who wrote this book. And you can go through the rest of this book all the way to the very end, and you will not find once the name Luke recorded in it. So, the obvious question is, why do we think it's Luke? <laughs> because clearly whoever wrote this, this person was anonymous. They didn't actually list their name down. So why do we think it was Luke, and which Luke was he? Well, in Scripture... There is one Luke that is mentioned on several occasions, and I'll just briefly allude to this. You don't have to turn there, but in Colossians 4, chapter 4, chapter 4 verse 14, the, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, and he mentions this, Luke, the beloved physician 
and Demas greet you. Luke, the beloved physician. Now, in ancient culture, unlike today, if you were to come across somebody in the street, they were likely not literate. Frankly, as I look out at most people, unless you are young enough that you haven't done schooling yet, I assume that most, if not almost everybody in this room, can read. That was not the case in Luke's day. Luke's day was actually very illiterate. So most people actually could not read, or if they could, it was very limited on what they could read because most people did not have a formal education like we have today. Yet when we read in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, that Luke is described as a physician, we instantly know something about him. He is an educated man. Physicians were educated people. Now, today, we think of a physician, and they're talking in terms and gibberish that we don't understand in writing and in cursive that none of us can read. But for Luke's day, they were people who were educated in the sense that they could read, they had a formal education, And they were doing everything they could to try help people with the maladies they had, even though they couldn't give you any kind of like scientific information like our doctors can today. One of the aspects of the Gospel of Luke in the original language is that these first four verses, verses one through four, are written in a highly sophisticated language. Some of you probably recognize that um, certain books have certain qualities to them. So, for example, I, I enjoy a book that has a good plot. And a lot of times I can tell you if the book is going to have a good plot or is written well if I know who the author is. I, as a teenager, loved to read any books that had the author Agatha Christie because I knew she was an insightful person. She observed people and she took her observations about people and incorporated them into her books so that when you read her books, it's almost like the people she's describing aren't made up people. They're they're almost like people she's actually seen and she said, hey, I need to write a book with that person as a character in it. It's not necessarily the same experience when you go to, say, for example, a Hardy Boys book where Franklin W. Dixon is not the main guy, whoever the author actually is, is not Franklin W. Dixon, especially if they're written today. And the books all follow the exact same format where at the end of the chapter there's a cliffhanger and, and the Hardy Boys are in some kind of a bind and you're going to wonder, are they going to make it out? And they always do, of course. But the quality of the book is not going to be the same as that of an Agatha Christie. So it was in ancient culture. There were people who could write in a certain dialect that was more like the common speaking Like the way you and I would speak. Let's pretend we were in the ancient culture. We speak in a common language. We're not going to speak in a highly sophisticated language like a lawyer or like a doctor would. The language here in the first four verses is a highly sophisticated language in the original Greek. So that whoever wrote this book, particularly these first four verses of the the prologue, was a very educated person. When you get to verse 5 through the rest of the book, it's in the common man language. So, there is enough case to suggest that whoever wrote the Gospel of Luke was educated and was educated very highly. And we already know that there is a man in Scripture who was connected with the Apostle Paul, and his name was Luke. He was a physician, which means he was a highly educated person. So, 
And you could go to other passages like 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, where Luke is also described as a physician. You can go to the, the Acts, the book of Acts, which we'll talk about in a moment, and you realize that whoever is with the Apostle Paul is also someone who was recording those stories in the gospel, or excuse me, in the Acts of the Apostles. So, all of that doesn't necessarily mean Luke wrote it. So how do we suggest, or what do we come to to suggest that Luke is the one who wrote this book? Here's the simple answer. In the first couple centuries of Christianity, there were people, including heretics, who said Luke was the author. For example, there's a guy named Marcion. You probably haven't heard of him, but he was a heretic. However, he made a list of uh, Scriptures that he believed were included in the canon or the collection of all of the Word of God. And he lists that this gospel right here that we describe as the gospel according to Luke was in fact written by Luke, the beloved physician. Another ancient writer, another church, uh, ancient father, Irenaeus, who lived in the second century, claims in one of the books that he wrote that Luke, the beloved physician, is the one who wrote this book. So, We have evidence to suggest that this person was a highly educated person who wrote it, and Luke was a physician. And we have tradition and external evidence by other people, including a heretic, who say that Luke wrote this book. I think we can safely conclude Luke the physician wrote this book. So that is who the author is. The author is Luke, the beloved physician. Now, One of the things we have to recognize is the fact that this book seems to be connected to another book, and that is the book of Acts, because whoever wrote the book of Acts, which also is anonymous, begins in verse number one of chapter one, if I can turn there fast enough, he says, the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, and he continues on after that. Whoever wrote the book of Acts is likely the same person who wrote the gospel according to Luke because, one, he says, the former treatise, that's a reference to something he'd written before, and he addresses it to Theophilus. So, we believe that the gospel according to Luke and the Acts of the Apostles are actually a two-volume set written by the same person for two different purposes. We'll talk about Luke's purpose in a moment, but the gospel, or excuse me, but the Acts of the Apostles was written by the same person, and if we believe the gospel of Luke was written by Luke, the beloved physician, then we can safely conclude as well that Acts was also written by Luke. But the purpose was slightly different. In the Gospel of Luke, as we'll see in a moment, he's writing to describe and defend the the teachings and the life and the identity of Jesus. In Acts, he's describing the results of that. What happened after Jesus ascended into heaven? Then what? The church explodes. The message is broadcasted. The church continues to grow, and even though it experiences persecution, God continues to sustain his church. But that's Acts. Let's come back to the Gospel of Luke. So, if Luke wrote this book, then when did he do it? Luke was alive during the same time as Paul, because obviously Paul's referencing him in his letters. 
So when did he write this? And the simple answer is, I believe he wrote it around the 60s, early 60s AD. If you, if you're, if you have your thinking caps on, if Jesus dies roughly, I'm just going to give rough numbers here, roughly 30 AD, that means 30 years later, or about the same age of my lifespan right now, Luke is writing about what happened when Jesus lived and died and rose again. 30 days have passed. I was born in 1992. It's 2023. So I'm 31 years old. Roughly from, if we're thinking in terms of when Luke is alive and writing, he's writing about something that happened back in 1992. And he's recording these events that have happened over 30 years ago. Why is this important? Because after 30 years, there probably were a lot of people who were no longer as excited about the message as they were initially. Imagine all the people who believed in Jesus. They heard the message of the apostles. They, they, some of them saw the miracles of Jesus. Some of them heard his amazing oratory and the skills of teaching that he did. But a lot of other people, let's say like me, if I had been born the same year Jesus rose from the dead, I didn't see it. Some of you, if you're younger, younger in age, younger than me even, you weren't alive when it happened. So you hear these stories from people who are all excited, but you're like, oh, I, I didn't see that happen. So it's still crazy to me. The teenagers right now that are in youth group were not alive when 9-11 happened. That, there's an event that happened in my lifetime and most of our lifetimes that our teenagers, they didn't experience. So they hear about it from us. Imagine now there are people who are alive and saw the ministry of Jesus. They see Jesus raise people from the dead, make the lame to walk, make the blind to see, the dumb to speak, cast out demons. They saw him on a cross cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They saw him take his final breath. Some of them were in the group of over 500 people who saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. And now they're excited to obey their Lord's command, to proclaim this message to far and wide to as many people as they can. But there are people who didn't see it. And they're wondering, is this true? After all, there are other religions around right now too. There's other people who claim that they have the truth. What's to say that you guys didn't have some kind of weird experience? You know, 500 people saw a resurrected dead guy. Maybe they all hallucinated. Luke says there is very real reason to believe that the events that happened over 30 years ago did happen. And I want you to know that they did happen, and I want to prove it to you. And I want to show you that they demonstrate the reality and identity of who that man was and is. So this is written close in proximity when Jesus had resurrected from the dead, but it's a few decades later. Who does he write it to? Who is the recipient of this letter? He describes in the beginning, it seemed good to me, verse 3, having had perfect understanding of all things from the first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. The name is Theophilus, which means lover of God, a lover of God. 
And some people who have come to the book of Luke as scholars have said, well, this clearly is not an actual man, lover of God. That, it's too coincidental that his name means lover of God. Clearly, this is just kind of a name that's meant to represent anybody as a Christian who reads this book. But I really do believe Theophilus was an actual man. An actual man who had actual questions in his mind. And Luke, who's traveled with the Apostle Paul and has extensive knowledge, not only of the teachings of Paul, but of course of Jesus Christ himself, and also has all of the network connections that Paul has because he's traveled everywhere with him, probably at some point, maybe in Rome, came across an aristocrat, aristocrat noble named Theophilus who heard the teaching of the Apostle Paul, came to faith in Christ, and his name just happens to mean lover of God. That wouldn't have been unusual for that day. The names back then meant a lot more than for us today. We pick a name when a child is born because we like the name, not necessarily because of the meaning. Not so back then. People chose names not because they just liked the sound of the name, but because the name had significance and meaning to those people. So it would not be at all surprising that someone would name their child lover of God, even if there was a lowercase g. They loved multiple gods. So, I believe Theophilus was an actual person, possibly a Roman aristocrat. And the reason I say that is because Luke says, I wrote this to you, most excellent Theophilus. That is a very honorific title that Luke is giving to this man. And I believe he's showing honor and respect to somebody who was high in society. And I believe that he was probably a Roman aristocrat because that was probably where most of the high society people were. They were from Rome. It's very likely then that Luke is writing this to a Gentile who is high up in society and he has some questions in his mind about Christianity, about Jesus, about whether or not he's believing the right thing. Some of you, probably when you were a teenager, had this crisis of faith. I know for Laura and myself, we had those crises of faith in our teen years. Is what I'm believing right here that's recorded in this book actually true? What's to say that this book is right and not the Book of Mormon? Or not the Koran? Or any other holy writing you can think of? What's to say that this is the right one that is true? I think Theophilus had those same questions. He's living in a pagan society where the Romans especially are embracing every false deity you can think of. They had their pantheon, their collection of gods. And for them, it wasn't any problem for them to say, oh, that Jesus guy, he's a god? Sure, let's add him to our collection. We want to have a a whole fully orbed collection of people who are gods. It wouldn't be any surprise that Theophilus is wrestling in his infancy of faith. Is Christianity true? Are the things that happened 30, over 30 years ago, did they actually happen? Or, or if they did happen, are we understanding them rightly? Or could people be misinterpreting what happened? And today, our faith is being assaulted by a society that is emphasizing science, suggesting that science itself is the ultimate truth and that everything that we have believed in the past ultimately must conform to science. I read a book 
uh, a couple weeks ago for one of my classes in seminary about this guy named Friedrich Schleiermacher. He was a German theologian, and I use that term lightly because, frankly, he, li- he lived in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Frankly, he was pretty much an atheist. He didn't actually believe in the one true God. But he was living at the, the moment of enlightenment where people were believing that everything had a logical, scientific explanation, which means Christians were being assaulted in those days, 300 years ago, with this idea that all the things recorded in the gospel that Jesus did couldn't possibly have actually happened. There's no way that he made a blind guy who'd been blind from his birth see because that doesn't happen. That's not the reality of the world we live in. The world we live in is a natural order and there's natural explanations for everything. So there were people in this man's day, his name is Friedrich Schleiermacher, there were people in his day who were saying, we just have to completely discard religion. It's just this inward impulse of people to worship some kind of esoteric, some kind of out there, uh, unknowable, mystical reality that we describe as God or gods. And this man named Friedrich Schleiermacher thought, well, okay, there are natural explanations to stuff, but, but, I mean, how do you explain years, thousands of years of people who are worshiping gods? There has to be something where we can come to the middle, where, where there is, yes, the natural order and everything that goes and happens naturally, but also there has to be something else that explains why we just want to worship a god of some kind. And so he was trying to build an apologetic, but unfortunately, I don't believe he was a saved man, and as a result, he ended up believing that within every human being, there is this spark of the divine, that there isn't one true God, really. I mean, we know the natural order proves that that couldn't possibly be true. Everything just happens naturally, and he's going to be coming really as the forefront or forefather of eventually Charles Darwin, who's going to be talking about ultimate natural origins. But he says there must be something within us as human beings where we have this spark of the divine within us. And for us, religion is just an an understanding that we are dependent, ultimately dependent, that we are not supreme in and of ourselves, but that within us there is some kind of spiritual spark that we must flourish in society with and have good morals, and, and be, be focusing on the needs and, and things of other people so that we can ultimately express this true religion. And the Bible is true insofar as it's like an Aesop's fable. You know, was there an actual tortoise and hare who ran a race? Well, no. But the principle of the fact that, that we, sh- you know, the, the moral of the story, if you will, of the tortoise and the hare is still true. The Bible's probably the same way, Schleiermacher is suggesting, that really it's, we, we don't have to say that Jesus rose from the dead or, or we don't have to say that Jesus made a blind person see or we don't have to say that, that Jesus cast out demons because those just aren't reality. I mean, most of us in our lives have not experienced anything like that. But they're still good moral stories. And they're true to Christianity or religion insofar as they teach us good morals. It's these kind of assaults that our teenagers are facing today, that you have faced in your lifetime, 
that our American society is reaping the unfortunate results of? And then it's not really new. Because here is Luke, almost 2,000 years ago, writing to a Roman aristocrat named Theophilus who has questions in his mind because the people in his day were starting to teach things like there's multiple gods and each god has their own emphasis and focus. And Luke says, no, no, no. The gospel that we have, the message that we have been proclaiming to you, the apostle Paul, the apostle Peter, and so many others, it's not fables. And it's an exclusive message. You cannot just tack Jesus on to your pantheon of gods, Theophilus. You cannot suggest that the things that happened 30 years ago by this man named Jesus weren't true. You must believe this is true. And I, as a historian, says Dr. Luke, will prove it to you. So, the recipient is this man who is probably wrestling in his mind. How does he reconcile the truth claims of these apostles and Jesus, uh, talking about Jesus, with the world in which he is? I believe this book is telling us who that masked man was. That's Luke's point. So as we finish up here then, what was Luke's purpose? And I believe it was threefold. Ultimately, this is just overarching purpose. Why did he write this? Number one, I believe he wrote this book to provide an orderly historical account of the life and teachings of Jesus. Luke records for us that he was not really an eyewitness. In verse 1, he says, I want to write this thing that declares to you what we have believed, verse 2, even as they delivered them to us, who were from the beginning eyewitnesses. Luke is saying, I didn't see this stuff. I'm like you, Theophilus. I didn't see any of this stuff. But I know the people who did. And so what I want to do for you as a historian is I went and interviewed all these people to find out what did they see? What did Jesus actually say? And I want to provide for you an orderly account of what actually happened. He wants to give an account of both the life of Jesus. Theophilus, you've heard stories that he made a blind man see. Theophilus, I talked to somebody who saw it happen. And I want to tell you about the teachings of Jesus. Theophilus, you have heard that, that Jesus said some crazy things. But these crazy things are not the sayings of a lunatic, nor are they exaggerated. These are the words Jesus said and I have somebody who heard him say it. Luke is writing a historical account that's orderly and describes exactly what happened. Much of Luke's account has things that aren't in the other Gospels. The Good Samaritan story that Jesus told is recorded by Luke. Luke records so many things that the others didn't, didn't talk about. And frankly, this is really fascinating. Luke, if he wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts, he wrote a third of the New Testament. He is a major writer of the New Testament that we hold in our hands today. And his buddy, the Apostle Paul, that he traveled with, wrote another third of the New Testament. So the two of them combined wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. These two men God used to provide for us the account of the life and teaching of Jesus. But number two, Luke records here for us this book 
to verify the accuracy of the claims of the Christian religion. Theophilus is wrestling with people of his day who were suggesting that that Jesus guy really didn't raise from the dead. There were people who were telling Theophilus, likely, did you know, I heard this, I heard that his disciples, the disciples of that crazy guy Jesus, I heard that they stole his body out of the tomb. And they, they paid off some of the guards to fall asleep or something so that then they could spread this false message about how, how they, their, their Messiah, their Savior, had risen from the dead. I heard that he paid them off. And Theophilus hears this and he wonders, is that true? Perhaps he even reached out to Luke. He says, Dr. Luke, I heard this story. Is this true? Are we, are we believing the truth or is this all a lie? What Luke says then here in this large gospel is I want to prove to you that the things you've heard from Paul, from Peter, from me, from Timothy, from so many others are true. They saw it. They heard it. They were there. These things are not being made up, Theophilus. And you know what? I'll be candid with you. I personally am so thankful that there are apologetic people, not in the sense of they're saying sorry, but in the sense of they're defending the truth of the faith. Because for someone like me, who wrestled at points when I was a teenager with, am I believing the truth? God sees the weakness of my faith, and I believe that that prayer that's recorded in Scripture of help thou mine unbelief, God uses men like Luke and Paul to help bolster and defend our faith. You may be here right now, sitting there, wondering in your heart, is the Christian religion the real religion, the right one? Is Jesus really a real person? Did Jesus really say that? Did Jesus really do that? You may be just like Theophilus, and God in his kindness and in his wisdom and his mercy has given to us a writer like a historian named Luke who says, let me show you this did happen. Your faith is not in vain. It's real. So he wanted to verify the accuracy of the claims, and finally, he wanted to demonstrate the certainty of the person and the work of Christ. This is why I had Mr. Hogue read the scripture reading he did. Because at the end of his gospel here, at the end of the first volume of his works, here's what Luke records. He records that the resurrected Jesus had a conversation with two guys walking on the road to Emmaus. And they're not understanding what has happened. In some ways, they're wondering, who was that masked man? What is this all about? I, have, I don't understand what happened. We thought he was our Messiah. He was a great prophet, and now he's dead. And they're sorrowful because they're confused. And what does Luke say? Said, I bet you, I, I would not be surprised if he talked with those two men. Said, what, what exactly did Jesus say again? And they say to him in verse 27, or verse, going back to verse 25, they said, here's what he told us. He, he called us fools. He said, oh, fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? 
And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus explained to these two men who he was, why he had to endure what he had to endure, and how it was all a part of the sovereign plan of God. And Luke says, I want you, Theophilus, to know this, that this Jesus is risen from the dead. He is the Son of God. In fact, he records in this gospel how three of the disciples got to see a glimpse into the glory of God when they see on the Mount of Transfiguration Jesus give a veiled view of his glory so that those three disciples, rather than staring in wonder and awe, fall flat on their face, terrified. And Luke says to Theophilus, this Jesus is the Son of God. And like the Apostle John, I'm just writing this to bolster your faith and to help everybody understand that in order for you to have life, you must believe on his name. Will you today believe the account recorded for us here that records for us the significance and importance of what God has done in Christ for all the nations. Who was that masked man? He was Jesus, the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to you for your word. Thank you for recognizing our feeble minds and our inclinations to waver in our belief and for providing for us the inspired words that help assure us the certainty and the importance and the significance of who Jesus is and what he has done. I pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to bolster the faith of any Christian in here today who is wondering, is this true? that there are eyewitness accounts, there are people who were there who heard and saw, and they testify that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. And as John says, believing on him, we have life in his name. Lord, I pray for any person in this room, any person who has come as a skeptic, who has not believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you would help them to see, have their eyes opened, have the light to shine in the darkness, to realize and see that these, these things recorded in Scripture are true and that they are a sinner in need of repentance and that a holy, kind, and gracious God offers them that forgiveness through this real historical Jesus. Thank you for your goodness to us. We pray that your name would be glorified as we go from this place, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.